First Corinthians chapter one, if you turn there in your Bibles. First Corinthians one, I'm gonna read verses eighteen through thirty-one. Listen to the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. And Greeks desire wisdom. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Pause. Why do Jews demand signs? Winning by divine favor. Rescue, miracles, getting through the Red Sea. God demonstrating his power on your behalf that shows that you are right with God. That's what they're looking for. And then you preach a crucified Messiah? All who are hung on a tree are under a curse. Therefore, this can't be the favor of God. It's a stumbling block to Jews. And a stumbling block would just be like, you know, when that one piece of tile is a little too high and your toes catch it and you about die in midair going, ah! And foolishness to Greeks. What are you talking about, the son of God? A weak loser? from a no-name tribe of people we hate? What are you talking about? Why would he want to come back from the dead to this planet? I thought the goal was to get away from this disgusting place, if you're, a, if you're a Greek. And he comes back? What do you mean he fully enters into the human condition? That's the last thing a God would want to do, and that's the last thing we want to do. We want to get out of here. Okay, unpause. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called. Called. This is not an intellectual argument. This is not a theoretical thing. This is not just a worldview. This is not, this is not theology on a page. This is personal. God makes himself known to each human. And he calls. And if you respond with yes to the personal invitation of God with, the, with this crucified Messiah that it's, me, it's for me, it's for me, it's for me, then this thing that is the foolishness to Gentiles and an offensive stumbling block to Jews becomes for you the access point into the bliss of reconciliation with God. It becomes the access point to the wisdom and the power and the love of God. Of course, if you don't respond to that call, it's foolishness. I'll just read it again. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God 
is stronger than human strength. That is a curious expression. The foolishness of God? The weakness of God? Are those not curious expressions? Doesn't that even sound like irreverent? I'm the only one who thinks that. The failed Messiah? That's interesting. I, and I think part of the reason it's like so surprising to us is because we don't think of it in those terms. We lack the cultural framework to be offended by the cross. And yet the cross is offensive even to our worldview because we've photoshopped the cross and the Christian life and the faith into something they aren't. Let me finish the text. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom, for, come, become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So back in the day, there was an Augustinian monk and you've heard of him. His name is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther taught Bible. He was a monk who, uh, he, and he decided to be a priest. And priests in uh, the Catholic Church sort of function as pastors. Not all of them do. Uh, sometimes you'll have a parish priest, and then sometimes you'll have monastic priests that don't have sort of local church pastoral duties. But Martin had a desire to be holy, that was so strong that he found it difficult to be a part of the established church. He was aware that he was more sinful than he wanted to be, and he couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. At one point, he took a trip to Rome, and he thought it was going to be this deeply renewing spiritual experience. He was looking forward to it. He thought, that'll give me the boost I need to get out of this depression. Instead, what happened when he visited Rome was he saw... Uh, beggars outside of huge cathedrals, uh, you know, decorated with gold. And uh, he saw, well, okay, it's true in every age. There are rich Christians in an age of hunger in every age, right? And he saw this, and he, he was like, there's got to be more. Like, something, something's, something is way wrong with us. And so he finally, when he later on, actually, the Lord led him into un re-understanding the gospel in a fresh way. And one of the, sort of the... Uh, dichotomies, is that a word for it? That he talks about is a theology, let's just put Luther up here for fun, a theology of glory, and he contrasted this 
to a theology of the cross. That's enough. And a theology of glory, Luther talked about, was people who uh, seem to be thinking that the faith is a way to get things in life. That faith, getting on God's good side, is a way to get things for yourself. Forgiveness, healing, power, influence, heaven. That the faith is a way of getting things. If, if, you know, and he, opposed, he, he said, There's, the problem with this is uh, the only way to get glory is through the cross. Not around it, not instead of it. Uh, and, I, and even in our day and age, we find people talking about Jesus took the cross so we wouldn't have to. And I'm like, actually in the cross, he entered fully into what we are. And we are in that cross with him, if you read Romans 6 carefully. We're in there. We're closer than the thieves on both sides of Jesus. But, but Jesus doesn't just do this for us. He does do it for us. And without it, we aren't saved. But he also does it as us. And in doing it, he calls us to a radical lifestyle of entering fully into the hard stuff of life in obedience to the Father. Because that's what love does. Am I making any sense so far? So the version of the gospel you get with Jesus is not an edited, airbrushed, uh, oversold vision of what life is going to be like as you follow the Lord. It's actually a vision of, that's really realistic. The good news, according to Jesus, starts with some very bad news. The good news is not if you do this God's way, you will be spared incredible suffering every day of your life. It's going to be so much better. Trust me, God is just really in a great mood. Therefore, everything's going to go well for you. Now, it is true God's in a good mood. And it is true he's going to help you every step of the way. But there's some bad news. To love in a world like this one is like taking a cross. To get healed in a world like this one, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, usually is going through the cross to the other side of resurrection, not around the cross. And Jesus becoming fully human, entering into the suffering and the pain, is not, this is, this is not what we expected. And for many people, they would say, that's not good enough news. I want better news than that. I don't have better news than that. Actually, I have better news than they think I do, but yeah. So theology of glory, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago when I was mentioning the Beatitudes, um, that people who have successful, wealthy, healthy, physically attractive, popular people, you know, they're the ones who tend to make traction in the Christian music and speaking scene, right? Yeah, good, you remember, okay. And that Jesus, we're not trying to say we want our lives to suffer. We're not saying that. But oftentimes people who have character don't have the kind of outcomes that we want in our life. Would you agree with that? There's some people with great integrity and passion for Jesus who are walking through difficult things that we don't want. And Jesus is saying, look, don't look at outcomes to discern who's blessed. Because sometimes the people who are blessed are the people who get strung up on a cross. Not the people who get shouted, you're amazing, come to our conference and speak and lay hands on all of us. And it doesn't mean that if you get invited to conferences and lay hands on people, you don't have integrity. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, oftentimes, the people who get to that place, at least those who, who are... There's some people I'm thinking of. I mentioned Heidi Baker the last time I mentioned this. I think Bill John. There's a bunch of people who have incredible integrity and because people are hungry for real, they actually do, they actually do get invited and have a voice. And it's a voice they earned 
through taking crosses and growing in secret when no one was watching so that resurrection happened and God actually bestowed upon them the kind of fruit that people can recognize and say, that's a good tree. Does that make any sense? Okay. But there are versions of the gospel that Luther's talking about here, a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross that are maybe, maybe the way, like maybe I'll, too photoshopped. Does that make, you know what I'm saying? Too photoshopped, too oversold, not gritty enough, just kind of, uh. and the theology of the cross, it involves, it includes the sin. There's an interesting passage in the New Testament that says, make allowance for each other's sin. Just go with me here. None of us wants to sin today. None of us wants anyone else to sin. So we can establish that. Make allowance for each other's faults. Let's soften the blow. Plan on each other sinning against you. When Jesus teaches us to pray daily, he says, Our Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day for our sins. Hold up, Jesus. Are you planning on me sinning every day? And, and forgive those who sin against, we forgive those who sin against us too. Are you planning on them sinning against me every day? Kind of. Do we want them to? No. Are they perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. So what are we going to do about it? A theology of glory is like, there's power, and there is power. There's resurrection. There is resurrection. A theology of the cross says, yeah, we have an empty tomb too. But it's on the other side of this cross. And there's some stuff you're going to have to attend to to get to, get to it. Amen. It's not the easy button. Boop. I feel like I'm still not getting the, the, the message across. Just pray for me. Because if you know me, you know that I'm not like, I'm not in favor of a, a, a theology of the cross. And Harold Everly wrote a book a while back where he talked about cross-centered churches and cross-centered Christians in a way that I'm not describing. This is not what I'm promoting today. Harold Everly talked about like the cross essential in these churches and people come kneel before the cross and they're just like, I'm so sorry, I killed you. I feel terrible. They, like they almost like bow in, in penance. Like they, they, they carry shame a lot and they, and they view the cross as like something they did to Jesus so now they owe him everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a sin identity. Like, I'm a sinner. If you're in Christ, you're not a sinner. Well, you just said I sin. Yeah, I know. You're a saint who's imperfect. There's a big difference. So I'm not, when I say cross-centered Christianity, the way I mean it is viewing the cross as the revealing of God. It's not something I'm doing for God. It's something that reveals how God is so in pursuit of you that, he, that there was nothing he did not fully enter into to become one with you. And now he's calling you to say the same. There's nothing I won't fully enter into, God, as you lead me to become love. Because I need the same transformation into your image. So what does your life look like in the world as you follow Jesus? It, looked like, it looks like Jesus' life looked in the world. And if it looks like something else, if he gets to be crucified, but you get to just like have a fun life and no sac- sacrifice, no suffering, no forgiving others, no laying down your life, you just want to skip to the resurrection, here's what's going to happen is you're going to end up with, a, with this faith is now going to have, be something separate from your real experience of life because life will continue to happen for you just like for everyone else. Hard things are going to come. But if your faith said, if I do my part, they shouldn't happen, now you have reason to be offended and feel like either you failed or God failed or the church failed or somebody failed. And the more that you have this theology of glory, rather than a theology of the cross, the more reason you have to have a bifurcated plastic fake life. 
It's plastic life. It's not real. And you won't really find it easy to believe, too. Like you, for the first couple of years, you might find yourself able to, to keep the illusion going. But if I just do the following three things, you know, maybe pour oil on it and blow a shofar at it more often, maybe we can get this thing working. Uh, here we go. I'm going to talk about The Matrix. In The Matrix, the second movie... Neil goes and he meets the architect. The architect is one of the major prim- primitive like, uh, pro- software, pieces of software who created the matrix. And the matrix is a, is a simulation that humans are plugged into to keep them docile and, and satisfied in their coma while they're used as batteries. Right? It's not very plausible, but it's a brilliant metaphor. And in the matrix, he says, the first matrix was designed to be a paradise. It was a total failure. Entire crops were lost. Your primitive cerebrum wouldn't accept the programming. Apparently, let me stop with the voice. He said people wouldn't accept the paradise because we're like, that ain't real. And they kept waking up. That ain't real. And he said, so another matrix was eventually designed to, to, uh, how do I say, Um, to better approximate the various grotesqueries of your nature. We're broken. The world's broken. Something's not right. So any kind of version of the faith that does not fully stare truth in the face, what it really feels like to live in planet Earth as a broken human who's being put back together but is not yet fully whole, and in a world that's being put back together but's not fully whole, any version of the faith that's too good to be true, we'll just reject anyway. And any kind of faith that tries to paint the picture of the line between good and evil as like out there. Do you know what I mean by out there? Like the line between good and evil, there's, that should like almost trigger a quote. You should be like, I know, I know the end of this quote. The line between good and evil, fill in the blank. You don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. That's my favorite is when the teacher, the teacher knows what he wants you to say. Just say Jesus when I do that because then you'll just be safe. The line between good and evil is not is not best understood as running between good people and bad people. No, no. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And a faith that does not acknowledge that you as a saint are capable of incredible evil and damage is a faith that's not helpful. It's a faith that will stop your progress because the human tendency to evade responsibility and rationalize our choices and move on the defensive and justify ourselves is so great. Oh, if we were alive, we'd have never done what those Nazis did. You're too sure of that. You're way too sure of that. You're way too sure of that. Way too sure of that. And that too sure of that opens us up to participate in similar kinds of sins ignorantly in our present circumstance. There's a moral cutting edge to the truths of Jesus where he constantly is trying to slap us awake by putting pressure to bear on us to stay awake and stay aware. He'll say things like, beware of the yeast of the scribes and Pharisees. If there's not a danger of me becoming a jerky, judgmental, self-righteous hypocrite, why would he warn me? Apparently there is a danger. 
of me being like, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I follow the Spirit every day. I'm doing my part. And, and, and so the theology of the cross says this life is about walking into the darkness that I don't want to face and letting God bring life and resurrection on the other side. Is this too heavy? Oh, well. And the other thing is like Jesus was tempted. This is fascinating. So Jesus fully enters into this, not by sinning, right? But think this through with me that Jesus was tempted. But Jesus was tempted. Now think about what this means. God the Father in eternity past, he's not even capable. He's not, James says this very clearly. You can't tempt God, correct? You can't tempt God. God's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's clear. It's Bible. But it says Jesus was tempted. And when he was tempted, Hebrews says he suffered in his flesh when he was tempted. What does that mean? It means he fully entered into the reality that he could have chosen and and, oh, help me, Lord, wanted to. Apparently, it's not a sin to be tempted. Apparently, you are not defined by what you want. You are defined by what you choose. Apparently, and see, this, is, this has implications all over the map, doesn't it? I'm gay because I have same-sex attraction. Are you? Am I Am, is, am I in my nature? Am I justified in being angry because I'm tempted to be angry? If I'm naturally greedy, is that somehow then make it a moral right? We live in a culture that identifies people by what they feel and what they want. I was born a woman, but I'm actually a man. Are you who God says you are or, who, or are you what you Want. You are the choices you make. You are defined by the choices you make, not the temptations you resist. And a theology of the cross says, you will be tempted. It will be difficult. Stay awake and stay open. The line between good and evil is not out there. Oh, those bad people who vote differently than me. Oh, those bad people who make less or more money than me. It's amazing. That's called identity politics. I'll just throw this on the board. You're like, I didn't think we were going to talk about politics. Jesus is politics. Jesus is Lord. That is a political ruler. You should abandon all political allegiances when you say yes to Jesus and follow him. Let him be the gospel, not how you vote. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm saying don't put your hopes and fears and, and messianic life blood into some sort of political party or ruler or ideology. It's not Christian. Do your thing. You vote. You, you vote. Vote your conscience. Vote what's righteous. We want righteousness and justice to flow down. That's what we want. But don't put your hopes and fears in political rulers. They're not Lord. They can't heal. They can't save. They can't redeem. They can't answer prayers. They can't forgive. They're just people. But identity politics, oh my word. Next thing you know, if, if, you're, if you're black then white people are your enemy. If you're white, black people are your enemy. If you're gay, straight people are your enemy. If you're Polish, Russians are your enemy. Like, if you're, yeah, if you're Jewish, everyone's your enemy. Like, identity politics, the next thing you know, sympathy, sympathy with my little, with my little socioeconomic group, my little cultural group, becomes a deeper identity than my oneness with Jesus who makes me one with all humanity. 
Because in Christ, there's neither male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greeks, barbarian, Scythian. Everyone is God's kid in Jesus. And everyone gets freedom and everyone gets purpose and everyone gets value and everyone gets dignity and everyone gets respect and everyone gets love and everyone has a voice and everyone has a destiny. And, and now we have something we can base stable, lasting love relationships and harmony on. And it doesn't come from us, it comes to us. Identity politics scares me. Okay, so when I asked for this cross to be made years ago, probably 10 years ago now, when I asked this, for this cross to be made, there were some specific requests that I had. I said, I would like this cross to be, number one, life-size. <laughs> I think that seems pretty life-size. Maybe even bigger than, I'm not sure. I would like this cross, number two, not to have carefully plain straight boards that were polished and clean. I want it to be rough cut. I want it to have bark on it and I want you to get splinters while you handle it. Number three, I want you to put blood on it. I think we got it. Sometimes for weddings, they flip it the other way because they're like, that's just a little too much. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't know about all that. This is a happy day. (laughs) I get it. But I wanted it that and I wanted it central. Now, there's another thing I want. And we were joking about the drum cage being the empty tomb then. I also want the empty tomb because that's half, that's, that's the one side of the coin. But there's another side of the coin. Jesus' life wasn't like all death and suffering. It was, the, it, it was resurrected life too. It was victory over Satan, sin, and death. Not just entering into them. So I'm going, where's my empty tomb? So then we just said, okay, well, for now, for now, this drum, <laughs> this drum cage will be our, our, our empty tomb and except it has drums in it. So that kind of ruins the, the symbolism. But think about this with me, that Jesus on the cross has this moment whoops, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's this moment. This is how fully this theology of the cross embraces the, the brokenness and suffering and dark parts of what humans, human experience and human life and human nature are, is that Jesus, okay, I'm going to say this wrong and then you're just going to forgive me, okay? In Jesus, God, at least for a moment, becomes an atheist. Now, I know I didn't say it right. Just get the point of what I'm saying. He so fully enters into the sense of being forsaken and abandoned in his moment of need and you've been there if you've lived very long that he experiences doubt and pain and some people say no he didn't he was just referencing Psalm 22 okay I think he said it authentically and through authentically saying it it also prophetically pointed back to Psalm 22 but in this moment God becomes an atheist what is happening here? And I have found in my life that my pain and my struggles of doubt and even sometimes like you have a bone to pick with God, you know he's righteous, you know you're wrong, you know you're the one who's wrong, but it's your soul. What are you going to do? Pretend your soul doesn't have a different opinion than your mind and your spirit? Maybe you haven't figured that out yet, but your soul has a different opinion. It has nothing to do with what you want to feel, want to think, want to believe. You're having an internal crisis of argument. The parts of you are not lined up. What are you going to do? You say God is good. Your soul says, I don't trust him. 
You say, I trust you, Lord. Your soul says, I just want to be happy. Get me out of here. Just make it stop hurting. What do I have to do to make it stop hurting? And at this point, if you don't have a faith that can enter into that death fully and find God in the darkness, remember the story in the Old Testament where it says, and Moses entered the thick darkness where God dwelt. If you don't have a faith that can enter the thick darkness where you have no answers, you don't know which way is up, down, left, or right, but you know you need something and you're convinced it's God so you're able to step across that line and make that choice. If you don't have a faith that can embrace and meet God in the darkness of unknowing, uncertainty, and the feeling of not having even ground under your feet, then you will just run back to whatever freaking coping mechanisms you have established to deal with hiding from yourself. And you might use Christian coping mechanisms. You might use drugs. You might use workaholism. You might use endless watching of videos or I don't know what you use. I'm not you. I know what I do. Nothing that I can feel too guilty about. You know what I mean? But there are still sneaky, subtle ways to avoid entering into the thick darkness that God's beckoning me saying, come away with me. And so the contrast sometimes gets way too stark between church life and real life. And here's what I mean. I had a friend and they recently said to me, they talked to me about like seeing a car accident on the side of the road, stopping, pulling over and there's this girl, she's getting a car accident. There's like broken glass on the ground and I think she has blood on her. And my friend like grabbed this total stranger, her her empathy rose up and she grabbed this girl in a hug and she's going, you don't understand, this is my mom's car. There's a Christian fish on the back of the car. You don't understand, this is my mom's car. And her boyfriend's hiding the drugs as the cops are going to come soon. I'm, you know, she's going to kill me or whatever. And my friend was relaying to me that felt like real, real Christianity. But that sometimes coming into church with our pretty songs about our wonderful God and looking around the room at people who smile today but who knows if they're even going to be here in a year if something rubs them wrong. And how do I even like, that, like this felt so fake to her. What's the point of church? That's front lines thing. It seems so real. Matches this cross, this thing she finds in her Bible and in her real experience, but then sometimes this doesn't feel as real. That was a powerful conversation. That person is awesome. (laughs) And I encourage them to ask that question. Why, church? Because Jesus has an answer to your doubt. Doubt will kick open a door. And if you're too afraid to walk through it, you won't get that answer that your soul is craving. But if faith is going to... See, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is, as we talked about in here a number of times. So doubt now has kicked open a door. Why church? And faith, if it holds, will walk right through that door into that darkness and Jesus will meet her there and she'll get a deeper answer for why church than I have. Covenant, that's what it is. This right here is such a big honking deal covenant this bloody ugly cross is actually the most beautiful thing that's ever happened in existence in all of human history and the reason is because behind the brutality is the God who is revealed through what he's willing to endure to get you and I to stay faithful to you and I to redeem you and I to get sin off of you and I to remove every obstacle between us and him 
So it's not, the ugliness of the cross is the suffering that this incredible, like, doesn't it just hurt your heart like crazy? I, I watched The Passion of the Christ one time and I haven't done it since because it's just too physically brutal for me to handle. My stomach tightens up, I want to vomit, and it's emotionally, I, and you're like, well, suck it up, he did it for you, watch the movie at least more. You know, I know, I hear you. But it's just hard to watch someone so awesome, someone so wonderful, someone so kind, someone so beautiful, someone so, like, harmless. He never, like, what's in Jesus' heart is so pure that to watch him treated that way, it's just like, ah, it's overwhelming. But he did that on purpose, guys. We know this, like, right? The opposite of Satan is not Jesus. It's Michael, right? When Jesus shows up, those two are wrestling, and they're like, I'm gonna get you, oh my goodness, I got you now, oh, okay, ah, and then Jesus shows up, and the devil's like, ah, and runs, right? And then Jesus says, no. And then this thing opens up in the ground and boom, you know, a thousand years in a pit with a chain. He can't move. It's not a fair fight. Jesus never lost any fight he ever was in. The only time he ever looked like he did was this time, and it was because he did this on purpose. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He is Lord. Like, I can't yell that loud enough to make that, mm. but he is Lord. So what does this mean? This is him cutting a covenant with us. And a covenant is so different from like what we know about in our culture. Like our culture, we have like co- co- contracts of convenience. You know what I mean? We know about contracts. Like I'll give you this if you give me this. These are our terms. You've, if you violate this, then, I'll, then the deal's off. We know about consumerism, right? Where we have clients and patrons, other way around, clients and providers. And, and we know that the, the customer's always right. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, the customer's sometimes wrong, and so is the manager. Like, come on, let's get real. Hey, can I return these? They're the same price. No, we have a policy that I don't understand, but I have to apply it because, <laughs> you know? Or the customer being like, I smashed this, but I don't care because I'm me, and you can deal with it. I'm not putting this back. Let's just take these groceries. I decided that I didn't want them, so you just you deal with it because I'm selfish. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, consumerism is garbage. So... When it gets into marriages and relationships and churches, contracts of convenience and consumerism, here's what we end up thinking. In my back pocket is this little card that I can play at any time and it's, I can leave. And I'm, please don't minimize this conversation down to like church. Please hear this in the context of all of life. You gonna do that in your friendships? In the back pocket? You have this little card that says, I'm just gonna leave. Uh, should I deal with this or not? I don't think I'm going to deal with this. But I am going to consider whether or not this is a big enough deal for me to go, ah, I'm done with you. I'll just make a new friend. I'm done with you. Let's find a new friend. Oh, that's much better. So every five years, we just get a new batch of friends when we're tired of these. Or a new wife. The younger, hotter model, if you have enough money, apparently, or power. Ew. And Jesus cuts this covenant. And you know what this means, this cross says? Oh my word, look at this cross. I'm never leaving ever. That, you know what this is? That is a little old something we call grace. Oh, and you thought grace was God pretending we were perfect. No, he knows we ain't perfect. And he's relating to us in such a way as to grow us and change us. He likes to confront our brokenness, but he's never leaving. 
And he knows we change best in an environment of acceptance and love. But he confronts. Sometimes when he confronts, you're like, that didn't feel safe to me. Well, because he doesn't care about how safe you feel in some ways. He cares about how healthy you are. I'm not leaving ever. Now, in that environment, it's like, that's actually what's required. I'm going to put another big word on here. If you don't have covenant, how in the world are you going to get out of this incredible human tendency to avoid anything hard or unpleasant? I mean, we are just incredible at this. Avoidance is a game we play, and we're like, that's a, it's, you know, if you, like, for example, it's like my theory, but if you don't answer the phone, they stop calling. Woohoo! You know, like that's, come on, that's not healthy. You know, if you don't, if I figured out that if I don't take the trash out, butch, it just kind of goes away eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because someone else has to deal with it. How in the world are we going to get out of avoidance, this incredible human thing where we hide from ourselves, where we don't enter into the, the, the black darkness, where we don't face ourselves, where we don't want to see this about ourselves, we don't want to face this thing that we did. Or that, you know, most people who get PTSD in war, they don't get it because of something they saw, something that happened to them. They get it because of something they did. You know, part of the reason we resent our spouse when we act like a fool is because of what they made us see about us, not because of what they did to us. You made me act that way. No, they didn't. They became the opportunity for what's inside of you to become exposed and you hated it so bad you projected that resentment onto them. That's why you get mad at people who make you mad for making you mad. Not because of what they did but because of what they made you face about yourself namely that you're not a good person. Oops. How can I be a saint and not a good person? I don't know. Take it up with the Lord. I'm not saying you're a bad person either. I'm saying you're a person that's capable of good and capable of evil. <laughs> Don't you like all the gray area that I create in most of my sermons? One person said to me years ago, uh, she goes to Hickory Ridge, she said, I feel like you ask a lot of questions and send us on a lot of journeys, but you don't answer a lot of questions. And I was like, I win then. That's how I win. If you are not in covenant, if you are in a contract, and if, they, if you hold in your back pocket, I can leave at any time. Or if they hold, oh my goodness, either, either way, if you hold in your back pocket, I can leave it if this gets bad enough. If you're like in a marriage and you actually use the word divorce, oh my goodness, shut that down. Don't, don't ever use that word. That word doesn't exist in your vocabulary if you're in this church. You hear me? It's not in your vocabulary. Just get rid of it. It's gone now. I know that me saying that didn't like make it that way, but I want it to be that way. Don't use that word. That's so destructive. Because what's going to happen is this, unless I'm never leaving, we can't deal with the problem. It's not worth dealing with the problem. But if you aren't leaving, and I, it's like, if we're never leaving, it's like either we're going to deal with this or it's going to be this way for 30 years, 40 years. Am I okay with this? That it's going to be this way for 30 or 40 years? Now suddenly I might be willing to confront something that I wanted to avoid even though this is eating a frog. It's my, friend, my cousin Jeremy says, start the day by doing the worst thing on your list. Eat the frog. And I'm like, I don't want to eat a frog. And my mom's like, well, but if you, if you fry it the right way, whatever, it's a frog. It's slimy. Well, it tastes just like chicken. Well, your chickens are nasty. <laughs> I was going to write a word. Do you guys know what it is? Because I don't. I don't remember. That's an E. I don't know. <laughs> Egg shells if you're in an environment where you fail or you sin or you mess up or you hurt them now and then they leave 
oh my goodness, you can't be you. You can't be you. You can't confront. You can't be messy. You can't be sloppy. You can't let anything out that... Now you have to figure out... Now instead of you managing your conscience and doing what's right, now you're managing them. You're managing their reactions to you. Eggshells. So unhealthy. You know what that's called when you're managing them instead of you? Uh Uh-oh. It's called enabling. When you're spending more energy managing their potential reactions to you than you are managing your own, like, health, conscience within yourself, it's called enabling. Well, I would confront this, but they're going to freak out. Well, I would tell them the truth, but they're going to be so hurt. Well, I would deal with this, but it's going to be such a fight. You, my friend, are an enabler. You're a weak person. You are not a powerful person, and you lack integrity. Welcome to humanity. And without community, like community, without covenant to like draw a fence around this and say, you know, we can duke this out here and now and find love and take better care of each other's hearts, learn a whole vocabulary that we apparently aren't good at for how to do conflict well, or we can stay here forever. I hope we were like, we would, we would say, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to stay here forever. Like, I love you and I love being married to you, but... If there's a way we could do this better, we should do it. <laughs> now, broaden it. Same for your kids. If they screw up, what do they feel like in your house? I'm smiling at Carl because like, I know this is a fun topic for him. Uh, there's so much I could say. Like, people view God as uh, like a, a policeman or a, or a, um, a referee. And he gave us this list of rules that he's going to be really mad and beat us over the head if we don't follow those rules. Like, I didn't see billboards that say, don't make me come down there. <laughs> or stupid billboards that are like, you think this is hot? You should see hell. I'm like, what are you trying to do to people? You want them to know God or just like say, what a jerk? You know, God's commands are not God's opinions about how he wants you to behave or else. God's commands are him revealing the nature and fabric of reality to you. And if you run against the nature of how like, life works, it's going to go bad for us if we do that. And God could stand back and just watch it happen. In fact, Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is found in him actually stopping pulling the reins. That God's wrath is revealed in how we experience consequences for our choices. And when, he, when he's really, really provoked to anger, He lets go of the reins and lets us have more of what we want. Notice how God's wrath is not him coming down there specifically to punch a guy. How dare you use heroin again? Punch in the face. How dare you cheat on your taxes? Punch in the face. Dude, he doesn't have to do anything because humans don't get away with anything ever. And I don't mean someone else is going to get us. And I don't mean someone's going to be found out publicly. I mean we come undone. Our internal parts fragment and we become at war with ourselves. And like 30 years down the road when life has just completely come undone and you pull the threads and you, of causation and you, and you go back, it was when he was seven years old and he stole and lied for the first time and it was never discovered. And it became the seed that grew into this whole tree and he thought he got away with it. See, and the cross is not God going, ah, forget it. 
The cross is God beginning to genuinely address the roots of the problems in our life and relationship with the big yes to Jesus. Boom, it's all forgiven. But now what are we going to do to be put back in order and learn how to love well and like put the world back in order? A bunch more yeses, a bunch more conversions, a bunch more deaths, a bunch more resurrections. If, if I had you write the story of your life, I bet most of you would have 45 or so distinct moments of death and resurrections that followed. How are we doing? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to wind this thing up. The other day I was having a conversation with a, with a guy who was basically in and out of addiction about four or five times and, and he's like, I didn't ask to be created. I didn't ask to be made. Nobody asked me, do you want to exist? This is bull. I don't want to be. Now I'm stuck here and I exist. You know what I want? I want to sin. I want to sin. I don't want to waste my boring life serving God. But if I don't waste my life my boring life doing what God wants, then I'll burn in hell. How is this fair? He made me a sinner, put me in a situation, put sin in front of me. It looks tasty and delicious. I eat it, it kills me, and then he puts me in hell. How is this fair? And I was like, oh, I'm so glad he's being honest. You know what? I'm not going to tell you what I told him. I'm just going to let you figure out what you would tell him later, and then you can tell me. Boom. I love when God creates something and then science discovers it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I love when God makes something and then science, thousands of years later, is like, we have discovered this thing. And I'm like... Uh, One of those things is I was looking at writing, the therapeutic benefits of writing, autobiographically writing, narrating your life. Some people call it journaling. I don't know what you call it. And so a sample set of people were given a, a simple writing assignment and the writing assignment was unscripted. It was just write about your life 15 to 20, 30 minutes a day. And the sample that wrote about their life uh, re- reported an increase in their quality of life in, during that time in which they were writing, meaning for the, during that season in which they were writing. Ah, oh, it's therapeutically beneficial. That's cool. But a different sample set was given a targeted writing assignment. Their targeted writing assignment was enter into your traumatic history. Write about the hard stuff. The traumas that happened, the things that went wrong, the losses, the things you're ashamed of, the things you wish never, the things you never want to ever face or think about. Write about those. Now, they experienced a dramatic dip in the quality of their life while they were writing. And then they experienced a long-term increase in their hope, in the resources they brought to bear on their daily life, and in the purpose with which they lived. And the, the benefits from them narrating the pain lasted permanently. And I said, sounds like the cross to me. All right, go ahead and stand. But seriously, tell me what you would have told that guy. Just keep trying, brother. Go talk to Tim. Huh? Talk to Tim? That's, that's cheating. Plus, how do you know that I know what I'm doing? But if you're the one in front of him, you're the one the Holy Spirit will give the wisdom to. You know who taught me that? Tammy. She said, I do these sozos and I'm like, what am I even doing? And the Holy Spirit's like, you're the one in the chair, so you're the one I'm going to use. Now stop complaining and get on with it. And then he does. So the cross is so filled with meaning that like I could never do it justice with a sermon. So I've tried to talk today about just a little piece of it. 
And in this cross, I see the loving, perfect, incredible Father of Jesus. I see Jesus, and I see the Holy Spirit fully embracing and fully, fully entering into the dark parts of our human thing. It does so much more than that, guys. I'm not trying to minimize all the other stuff the cross achieves. But I want us to hear the voice of the Father saying something like this today. Join me. Join me in this place of being real. This place of authentic love. This place of covenant. Join me in this place of living in the open fields of grace. This defenseless place of truth without judgment. This place where what's really wrong can be addressed at the root because there's no judgment. Open up your heart and let me in. You've followed me into the light. Now follow me into the dark.